In a movie that is super quirky, on the nose, an emotional roller coaster of WTF, um, there's a lot of things to be touched on and explained, and you're tuning in to Off the Top Podcast. Yeah, and if you're not aware of what he's talking about, there was a recent movie drop called Sorry to Bother You that was written by Boots Riley that touches on a lot of topics in a very dystopian way. Yeah, and the first thing that um, is very interesting about this is it's all very independently funded. So it didn't get a lot of play at major theaters, but um, as time is progressing, more and more people are pushing to get it in larger theaters to kind of see what the buzz around the movie is and all these um, interesting concepts that the cast has put together and kind of overlaid into this movie. Yeah, exactly. Which is an interesting point because you do have some notable characters and actors in this movie as far as Tessa Thompson, who plays a big role, Laketh Sanfield, who's the main protagonist. You have Terry Crews in there, Army Hammer, and also Steve Young, who you guys probably know from The Walking Dead. Yeah, and um, they kind of all culminate slowly and create this relationship as telemarketers at a company called Regal View and kind of... Um, really goes over the telemarketer life of sticking to the script um, and calling these people to sell low-level items such as like encyclopedias or little books and this and that. Yeah, and I think the sticking to the script part is probably one of our the first themes there. Almost like status quo, like stay where you should be staying and don't try to mix it up. Yeah, and this, um, we find the main character, Cassius, um, cash is green cash is green which is a cool play on words um, he is from inner city oakland and he lives with his uncle in the garage and they're struggling to afford rent and this might be a nod to the gentrification of the oakland area currently where a lot of people are being forced out of their homes for not the rent rises and rent spikes but Cassius ends up getting a job as a telemarketer that his buddy uh, salvador helped him get Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, and you kind of really get the first taste of the comedy and those couple scenes, as in Cassius, he basically is somewhat of a derelict in the way that he doesn't work. He seems like kind of a lazy bum when you first get to know him as far as on screen, and you can see that by him faking his own resume and job references, and I think that's kind of funny in the sense that even though he was caught red-handed, and wasn't very smooth in his execution, they still gave him a job because it's telemarketing. Yeah, I think telemarketers are always getting hired. People are always going to need people to call people's homes. And that's kind of the cool thing of this absurd sci-fi type film is that the first time you see him, you know, doing some telemarketing, he's literally dropped into their homes, basically. So basically looking down the pipe to who he's calling and kind of, I don't know, it kind of trips him out because he notices it too. And getting to see him struggle with sticking to the script or not knowing the script to start with. Yeah, exactly. And you can see, yeah, in those first interactions, when he's dropped in on a guy uh, with some sort of woman and they're having dinner, the next one, some girl's getting slammed. And then the third one, he gets dropped into this lady whose husband just went to the hospital and was very emotional. And so it shows that the uncomfortable situations that you're dropped in as a telemarketer, and especially since Cassius is just starting out, he's more even a fish out of water, not having this normal interaction with people. 
Yeah, and then you kind of evolve into, you meet the management of Regal View, which is the dude with face tattoos, um, kind of a, just a boss that's chilling around, and then this new team leader is a little eccentric, um, and you can just see that's just a, what you think of a telemarketing company. Everyone's in cubicles, not a lot of motivation. You get paid on commission, so if you don't make sales, you don't get paid, um, and that really kind of strikes a lot of them as wrong, um, and there's probably a better way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, further on in the movie, like around this point, you get to know some of the other players. So there's a guy named Squeeze, uh, Steve Young, who plays him, uh, basically is one of those guys that um, moves around and sets up different unions and almost protests to fight for equal rights when it comes to or fair rights when it comes to workers and laborers. Yeah. And this was my my first take on this is that this large play and what this movie is kind of rooted in like capitalism and you know the wealth gap is that i have a theory that steven is more so a dude who is working with bigger companies to create publicity in some sort of way for these companies because throughout the whole movie you see squeeze but he's never really bothered by much he's like yeah let's get paid more um, yeah, let's do this. Like, I've done this before here and here. Um, and then, you know, they later in the movie, spoiler alerts. Yeah, I forgot to tell you guys a lot of spoilers. Um, spoiler alert, like he the protest goes, and everything's cool. And he's just like, all right, cool. I'll catch you guys later. Yeah, exactly. And a very interesting point. I guess I've never thought about that. But then that would lead into some serious foreshadowing later on in the movie when basically Cassius is proposed to do that same job in a way different and crazy situation that Steven is. And he's almost coined as, you know, this uh, sector or species, uh, Martin Luther King fighting for equal rights and everything. Yeah, and then the other thing that makes me think Steve is some sort of an inside guy is that when Cassius wants to uprise towards the end of the movie, um, Steve is basically like, well, you know, like something's changed and you just have to adapt to it, which is total contradictory of dude who wanted change and was going to fight for it. And now it's just like, yeah, you know, it's whatever. Like, you just got to let it happen. Yeah, stick to the script almost. Yeah, um, and then basically we go back to the towards the beginning of the movie where Cassius meets his cubicle mate, um, Langston, played by the famous Danny Glover. Um, and Danny Glover introduces the best way to sell, which is the white voice. Yeah, and it's very interesting. So I feel like if people don't um, have an idea what the white voice is just off the bat of hearing it, it's almost like a lightened and alleviated voice. And Danny Glover or Langston goes into more detail in the fact that the voice comes from a spot of absolutely no worry so you know people who are struggling trying to make you know pay rent or make their mortgage so they can keep their home they need to dis detach themselves from their current situation and have this uh, voice come from someplace with worry 100 percent confidence and having the best life possible yeah, and uh, basically this turns into um, Cassius's guy becomes voiced by David Cross, if you're familiar with who that is. I think he's in Arrested Development and a few other things. Um, it's just really, you know, traditional white voice, which I mean, you, everyone's done it or everyone's heard it. Like when you answer the phone, you're a little bit different than you are in person. Or if you're working in retail, like your voice to service people is a lot different than your regular voice just because 
you try to make people comfortable or you're, you know, trying to sell a product or, you know, if you people with an accent or um, certain slang don't do as well because it's different or it's discerning and it doesn't result in sales. So that's why Cassius has to go from this, you know, traditional black voice, which he says isn't very black, you know, like there's not a whole lot of slang. It just says a few things or phrases to this, you know, David Cross white voice um, and using those, you know, phrases such as holler or holla, holla, holla. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is a point an important point in the movie where it kind of illustrates the um, situation that I feel like uh, a few people go through. I mean, I feel like it's a joke kind of um, like on Twitter where you can get anywhere if you, you know, use your white voice on the phone or anything like that. But it almost is the shedding of, you know, Cassius's true self, which is this African-American guy who's like struggling, trying to make ends meet, you know, fighting his way through life and uh, stepping into this person who doesn't know what struggle is, you know, never has struggled, has an amazing life. And um, he finds success and um, almost turning his back on his original roots. And then you could see that further on in the movie as well. Yeah, so he just basically starts killing it and then becomes the next elite level, which is called a power caller. And basically, Cassius's biggest concern, what he talks to Langston about, is like, how as a you know regular telemarketer, are you only getting paid X amount of dollars or commission as these power, power callers are getting paid the big bucks? And Danny Glover's character, Langston, basically says... You know, instead of comparing apples to oranges, you're comparing apples to the Holocaust. So kind of a very shocking, jarring thing where you're like, oh, maybe they're selling bigger, you know, bigger, weirder things or government stuff. And he kind of gets, you know, promoted to a power caller. Yeah. And um, before power callers were portrayed as this very um, enigmatic a group of people where, you know, you have to go to this elevator to get to the, where they work. And, you know, this elevator has gold doors. It's very lavish. And uh, it's one of those things where before Cash had, like, you know, there's scenes where he just is staring at this elevator door, just wondering what's behind there, wondering what the people are doing in there, who they are, and things of that nature. So when he finally gets up there, it's, it's actually pretty eye-opening what they're about. Yeah, and most of the time you see this golden door, you hear power callers, you really see this one figure who's uh, named Mr. Blank, who I believe is played by Romari Hardwick. But uh, going into my next theory is that um, basically this dude is, spoiler alert, this dude's the horse wrangler, right? Every time you see Mr. Blank in the film, he's holding an apple or eating an apple. Um, and he's also an art reference because it's modern day century, but if you're Familiar with Migrate um, is a self-made portrait called The Son of Man where this dude's wearing a bullet, a bowler hat with an apple in front of his face. And the description to this painting is everything we see has a hidden, some, hidden something behind it or knows something more about it. Um, and so you get to meet Mr. Blank, this dude who, you know, is really guiding Cassius to be a very successful power caller and making him, giving him the best opportunity he can. Yeah, and that's a very good point. Um, I never thought of Mr. Blank as a horse wrangler. I almost imagine the apple as being kind of the fortification of, you know, being a pure human being and having strong values in the fact that they ate an apple. Um, and so they turn their back and more, you know, empowered and chasing, you know, the material things in life. But as they get up there, one thing I found interesting is that, you know, instead of Cassius using his white voice, 
um, when he was selling. Now at this point, it's almost a requirement that he uses it permanently whenever he's in the building and working. Yeah, and the other thing you notice when you get to that power caller level is there's no other um, black people besides Mr. Blank. Um, in the background, it's always kind of white people, um, stereotypical what the professional working class looks like. Um, and basically, Cassius gets up there and starts killing it and gets assigned the worry-free account. Yeah, and this is where um, Cassius is aware of what he's actually selling at the top. When Danny Glover talked about the Holocaust um, and Julian just referenced that he got the worry-free account, what they're doing now is trading and selling human labor. Yeah, and basically what worry-free is, is you think of a giant corporation that wants to cut on costs. Um, they're incentivizing their employees to get jobs basically by saying, you know what, we'll pay for your living, we'll pay for your food, we'll pay for your transportation. Because um, you're basically, they all live in the factory like three in a cot on three-story, you know, bunk beds basically. And you don't, they lower everyone's wages. They really aren't paying them anything because they pay for everything inside the factory and it has everything you need. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is the first portrayal of that indentured servitude that will be referenced back in a lot of um, parts in the movie where capitalism um, is almost going circling back to its roots as, you know, using slave labor to produce goods and turn the maximum profit. And while this is going on and Cassius is killing it upstairs, his friends Squeeze, Salvador, his girlfriend Detroit, and Langston are starting protests to get paid more because the lower-level telemarketers are only getting paid on commission. Not a, um, so if they don't sell, they don't get paid. And they create this riot and pick up picket line in front of the company that um, is trying to stop people from getting in the building the power callers you know trying to stop them from getting in the building and they're starting this left eye or the left eye movement's also there to protest worry free so there's a lot of different kind of unions or protests going against these corporations and what is being sold yeah and at this point you can imagine that cassius is almost separated and ostracized by his friends and he ostracizes himself to a point where you know his people that he came up with in the telemarketing business or like building that was in the basement ironically and the power callers are in the elevator up top but now he's crossing the picket line every day to go to work and at first initially the reason why he was working so hard was to help his uncle who he lives with pay his mortgage that he was laid on and now at this point as being a power caller you can see that Cassius is doing more than just helping his uncle pay for you know his house which he there's a scene where he shows him you know cash is giving his uncle money and it obviously is a large sum of money by his reaction but now you can see him you know changing where he like lives where how he dresses and all of that stuff yeah so he ends up buying like a maserati um with like neon lights and stuff like kind of true to that oakland scene and then basically he's doing really well and he's, you know, trying to impress his girlfriend more. His girlfriend Detroit is like a, I guess, a struggling artist or whatever. And she's not down with the white voice and, you know, the agenda that's being pitched. And he's basically saying like, well, I'm doing this for you. And like, who are you to criticize when you're basically making your art to sell to rich people anyways? Yeah, absolutely. And so as things in the movie progress, obviously that tension between Detroit and Cash um, definitely separates them and wedges itself in between them. Also, you can see that, um, you know, it's getting more serious at the picket line. They have an argument about that as far as, you know, the more people that are at the picket line, um, uh, cash basically is 
continually turning his back on the people that he like started with and Detroit has a problem with that and so they eventually part ways in a very kind of like enigmatic or like you know amorphous way it wasn't like a very hard break but you know through the viewers of the audience you could definitely tell that it's not good yeah and then so we go back upstairs and Cassius is you know killing it um he crosses the picket line one day and gets hit with a coke can and the thing goes viral with like 12 or 13 million views and just continues to scale like that but mr blank um you know invites Cassius to um ceo of worry free steve lift or lift his party um the interesting thing here is that mr blank says he's never been to one of these parties and is a party you have to go to um and then so cash is like sure i'll go but i gotta stop by my girls um art exhibition first um before i go and that's kind of how they set it up yeah and before i want to talk on the soda can incident so when cash gets hit with that cola can or coke can or whatever it is um that becomes a like a widespread meme and this is kind of talking in the feature of the movie as well but it almost portrays, you know, what's happening today in modern society where, you know, if you are a meme or portray yourself out to be a meme like we've seen before, um, specifically, I'm talking about the cash me outside girl, you know, all of a sudden she's getting paid six figures um, just because, you know, nothing of her own work ethic or skill or anything, but just the portrayal of. Um, you know, the culture of getting behind something that's kind of tawdry and, you know, not very, you know, solidifying, I wouldn't say is a huge net positive for society. Yeah. And the kind of the society in this movie really wants to be distracted. So they have this meme girl get signed to a big contract just for throwing this Coke can basically. And then they also have a show that just people getting the shit beat out of them um, for money or some fame or whatever. And people like 150 million people a night watch it. Um, so they're really looking for a distraction and it kind of distracts a lot of people from what worry free is really doing. And like uh, some of these capitalist companies are really doing to their local environment. Exactly. And so back to where Julian left us off um, at where Cassius is going to the art gallery or art exhibit that Detroit is putting up. One thing that struck me very, very hard in the first like moments of seeing like what was going on there. First off, Detroit looks notably different. Her hair is slicked back. It's not out and it's usually it's multicolored and orange, gray and red and like some other colors. But this at this point, it's slicked back in like the silver color. And she's talking in a British accent, almost using her own white voice. Yeah, it's very hypocritical. I mean, it's pretty direct that she's using her white voice and she's failing to acknowledge really what she's doing. And this is the turning point for me where I really think in this movie that Cassius is in a clear state of mind. Like he understands what he's doing is bad, um, but it's how he gets paid. And he, you know, it's just kind of what he does. But she's denying that she does it and she doesn't do it. But it's like very clear that cut and dry that she is changing her appearance, changing her voice to like a British art host um, to appeal her art to a different demographic than the demographic in the area. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's not just that Cassius is doing this. It's everyone's doing it, it seems like, but he's getting the most slack, you know, from it. And so uh, as the night goes on, Cassius tries to make, you know, amends in some sort of way 
to Detroit ends up not going very well. And then you could see obviously Detroit siding with Squeeze, who also is there, and his buddy Salvador that shows up as well. And at this point, Cassius leaves the art exhibit, you know, not on very good terms at all, kind of stressed, worked up, and heads to that huge party. Yeah, this is kind of where you start getting familiarized with the big CEO scene where they're throwing this huge wave or rave and you get to meet Steve for the first time who's, you know, it really makes the crowd comfortable or familiarizes because you've seen it a couple times in the movie with people kind of railing these lines of coke and he's doing, you know, probably like 18 inches of coke and you're like, wow, you know, this is just how they party. Um, I guess everyone's going to be doing coke in here and really connects that ideal with this character and there's a ton of people in there like a not very much diversity um you know mr blank and Cassius show up and there's just kind of a lot going on yeah exactly and i think that this kind of is the point where you truly believe or like you truly get the sense that you know steve the ceo of worry free um is you know like your quintessential uh psychopathic ceo that doesn't really value human life and the ultimate value is his dollar incentive. And you can see that through, you know, uh, the way of him running uh, worry free in the first place and further on in the movie. Yeah. And uh, so basically, Cassius gets run, runs up on Steve and meets him. And Ka- or Steve is just kind of busting his chops for a little bit and really likes what Cassius is doing. Um, and the in- other interesting thing is that Steve is also just really, after all this stuff about Worry Free came out and it's slave labor, he just released his book called I'm on Top, which is a picture of him, you know, just chilling on a horse. Um, rise into the top and kind of talking about the future and uh, so they kind of become buddies and the night progresses and you find Cassius sitting in front of Steve and his usual party goers which includes Mr. Blank who said he's never been there before um, you know Cassius is chilling trying to impress them I guess yeah and um, the other party goers that Julian's referencing is basically a myriad of girls like a harem of women in bikinis and scantily clad like draped over Steve and kind of like in this huge pile basically and then Cash is sitting in the middle of the room they ask Cash basically the stereotypical things just being African American um, the first thing they ask him is like you know tell us a story about Oakland you know like expecting some sort of story about him and gang affiliation or drug dealing or anything and when he says that he doesn't have anything or doesn't give them much they basically ask him after that uh, like have you ever popped a cap in somebody's ass I think were the literal terms that he said or asked him and um, Cash said no and then eventually Cash finds himself ending up on like basically uh, rapping and that so they basically insisted that he knew how to rap first off and then imposed that he does rap and that's how he ends up like on the stairwell like in front of everybody with the mic in his hand yeah so basically yeah they're implying that he can rap because he's from Oakland and he's black and he gets put into this force into this position because like he's kind of the odd one out and so he's not very good at rapping but the way he starts is he starts to try to rap with some sort of substance or lyrics or something of like a meaning or a message and you know you can tell the crowd really doesn't understand it or it isn't really getting the hip-hop vibe so he kind of transitions into you know i guess modern day hip-hop where he's just repetitively saying the n-word and other obscenities just over and over again and you know the whole entire white crowd loves it like they just love the rhythm and like you know it's some edgy you know rap lyrics or whatever um and they just love it 
Yeah, and they also like are such a fan of it that they start singing along as well. And even there's a point where Cassia stops and they're still going along, not even noticing that he stopped. And I think that uh, the first time I saw that scene, I imagined um, J. Cole put out his last album. Uh, there's a song called 1985, and he basically talks to Little Pump, Little Pump, who's a rapper in this current generation, who you know Julian referenced a little bit by doing like you know doing that and the group that are era that you know is very heavily involved in just the repetitive kind of um you know mumble rap as some people call it and so one thing that j cole says in that song is basically you know the white kids and everybody who's getting behind you the reason that they are is because you basically are you know they expect you to act a certain way and i felt like that was even like better portrayed in like you know what cash was doing and the fact that you know they weren't getting a lot like they weren't feeling it before when he was trying to rap which he really couldn't he wasn't a very good rapper but the second that he basically started um, to do exactly what they expected and wanting him to do with the kind of the nudging of, hey, do you sell drugs? Have you been in a gang? Like, have you killed anybody? They expected him to act a certain way. And the second that he started acting the way they expected him to, they started getting, you know, hyped and, you know, jumping on it. Yeah. So this scene kind of transcends the movie and kind of at a weird pace. And then you get you're kind of and it cuts and you kind of get this homage to get out where you have. Cassia sitting in this chair drinking tea and you get this long panning shot out into the main hallway with these red lights and it's basically an orgy going on um there's a lot of you know a lot of sex going on and then this is where you know mr blank shows up one more time um the first time you really don't see him in his bowler hat and the first time you hear him use his actual voice um as you know he kind of uses his actual voice to kind of calm down Cassius and the events of the night and you know once again mr blank's never been to the spot but then gives Cassius these very detailed instructions on how to get to the ceo steve's uh, office through all these turns and colored doors um for a you know a really good opportunity for him um to meet with steve yeah and before he gives those instructions he also imp- Implores Cassius to basically, you know, don't use your morals. Like, don't don't get held back by your morals. Like, you know, if you want to make it big, you have to do this, and you got to set aside, you know, what you believe is true. And so, I think that sets the tone of what you know um, why Steve wants to meet with Cash. And so, once Cash finds his way down there. Um, it's him and Steve. And so the first thing Steve uh, asked him to do is smoke or like snort this oddly shaped like swirl of cocaine. And it's like on a plate that says like Mr. Bobo, which is a horse on it. And so then they start talking about, you know, the great things that Cash is doing and how much of a fan Steve is of him being a power caller and then brings the opportunity of, you know, or the interest of Steve wanting Cash to work at worry free yeah and cash is a little kind of skeptical about it at first and he's like all right you know let's talk about it but first let me go to the bathroom steve's like nah man let me show you this video and cash is like no let me go to the bathroom and it kind of goes back and forth for a little bit cash ends up getting some very particular instructions to go to the jade door to go to the bathroom cash's little party out or whatever and coked out or what we assume is coke and he goes down this olive door where he walks into this uh, bathroom, which kind of looks like a high school shower. Um, and he turns and he sees, you know, one stall 
And in this stall, he hears, you know, someone asking for help or needs a little bit of assistance. And as a viewer, you're just kind of like, what? What's going on? Like, what is this green light? Like, why is there only one stall in this giant, you know, house? Um, so, you know, Cash just walks up, opens the stall, and this is where we meet the Equisapiens. Yes, and before Julian mentioned that Cash goes into an olive door, he got instructions to go into a jade door. And another thing that is probably important to the scene is that um, going to the CEO's uh, door room that he was in, there is a line, a hallway of about four doors that look the same color to probably everybody. It looks jade um, along their way on each side. So anyway, Cash just finds himself um, opening the stall door. And this Equisapien, like Julian said, is some sort of mix between a horse and a human. And it's very jarring and very, very fucking scary. Uh, oops. <laughs> uh, and um, so this person and like human slash horse so they're huge muscles uh have this horse head and like speak english speak english and um yeah and like are all in chains and stuff so this one falls out cassius obviously like very startled by it he starts backing up and he um also along the side of the room there was covers like uh like curtains like for showering and behind those curtains were even more of those equisapiens and all of a sudden you know there's like probably what i would say like 12 or so in there there's like five of them five of them and they're all making noise cash is freaked out and then the ceo comes in yeah and basically like i thought it was a cool plan words that they kept he was keeping these horse humans in their stalls like regular horses are kept in their stalls and the whole curtain is something you do with horses and all these things that the second time you'd watch it, you'd, you'd kind of be like, okay, this kind of makes sense, but a cool plan words. Yeah, Steve basically finds, sees that he goes in the wrong room, holds Cassius up at gunpoint, takes him into his office, shows him the video about evolution and how we've adapted and what the next you know next step is, um, especially from a corporate level as to people are too weak, um, they whine too much. So we you know genetically modified and engineered them to become you know half human, half horse by using our sweet activator. Yeah, and so one thing to notice about this is they portray and talk about basically how tools are an extension of a human at some point. And so I think this portrays basically this genetic modification of almost fusing that tool and the human together. So basically they see in the capitalist world or worry-free, they see them as tools, not humans. And they value the human life. And I think it's also kind of funny how they're using these equisapiens for work and so almost like a workhorse. And anyway, so this activator that Julian's talking about is looks like cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically at that point, you realize like you're playing this game with yourself. Like, did Cassius really snort this coke or this activator? And Cassius is freaking out and is like, dude, what did you give me? And this kind of goes on. And then Steve's like, no, I just gave you coke. And then he gives him an offer for like a hundred million bucks because he realized Cassius is really about money, comes from inner city, you know, his weakness is getting more money. And Cassius is already flipping out about, you know, horse penises, um, the whole genetically modification thing. And he's like, um, I don't know. And basically Steve's like, yeah, you know, you get a hundred million dollars. We'll give you the antidote and you become half horse or whatever. And then you can become our MLK and like quickly jumps over all this stuff. And which what he jumps over the quickest is like, we'll give you the antidote, which at that point confirms Cassius has taken the activator. 
Yeah, well, uh, so from my point of view, he still claims that it's cocaine, but basically what happens is, and another thing I want to mention too, is the descriptions that they use for these Equisapiens, um, there's three of them mainly. They're physically more stronger than, you know, normal human beings. They have large nostrils and they have a horse dick is what they said. And so basically when I, you know, when, if you think about that in an uh, basically human characteristics. These are caricatures, of course. But another, you know, stereotypes that those fit in is basically like human slavery back in the day when they used like African slaves uh, to pick cotton who were, you know, worked really hard and stuff of that nature. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. Um, so he, the CEO offered him that $100 million and still he's very odd and very psychopathic in his way. You know, he has a gun in his hand um, and Cash just can't leave the room but he's joking around saying well you're gonna get a horse dick and as like oh that's really sweet you know that's the that's the true thing on top of the hundred million dollars but also so he convinces him you know it just be five years become a horse for five years be this martin luther king lead this uprising which kind of reminds you of squeeze right you know starting this uprising and being the inside guy and all of this and then we'll give you the antidote and you know you're good to go yeah, so obviously Cashless is messed up. He goes home, can't find his phone, calls his ex-girlfriend. Um, she says he leaves him a, you know, face, face message, um, or FaceTimes or whatever. They look at it. It's footage of the Equisapiens getting rounded up by Steve and his crew and being told they're going to turn into glue. Um, basically from there, they, you know, uh, Cassius goes on a real mad rant, goes on the show to get the shit kicked out of him to show this clip. Clip goes huge. He's on everything tonight show, um, late night X and Y. And yeah, everyone on earth sees the video. Yeah. And so you'd think that, you know, the public opinion of worry free would be like horrible. You know, they're creating these monsters to basically have slave labor out of humans. But the thing was, is that worry free stock and equity jumped a huge amount. You know, they found huge success. They got a, a lot of publicity from it. And so now you have Cassius basically just on his at his wits end. He's not sure what to do. He tried to warn everybody and like, you know, bring this to light. But on the app is on the basically the opposite thing happened in the fact that everyone is now, you know, super up on this company that they are going to be the next, you know, big thing in capitalism to basically create their own slaves. And he sits down with Squeeze and his buddy Sal and is just uh, at wit's end. And then Squeeze uh, mentioned something that I found very interesting. He basically says that, you know, if people can't change anything or, you know, if the public finds something that they can't change, then they'll just embrace it instead. And the fact that they couldn't change the fact that worry free was creating these like horse humans or didn't believe they could, you know, and Cassius implored them to call their Senator, which is a thing that we hear a lot nowadays, but you know, nobody called their senators thinking that they couldn't change it. And there was actually senators in bed, basically lobbyists for worry free. And so at this point, it backfired, you know, Cassius's hope in human values and like the population was severely let down. 
Yeah, and then so Cassius gets back on the picket line, um, and they're doing the regular picket thing. They stop the power callers one time, and then uh, more SWAT comes in. You get this full-on riot. Cassius gets locked or whistles before he gets locked up. Gets locked up in this van just right outside of the you know picket line with this little eye slot that he can see, and you know you you see this kind of SWAT van running after some protesters. And it kind of gets stopped in its tracks. And at this point, you realize that his whistle, you know, freed the Equisapiens. Um, and you get to see this group of Equisapiens kind of stand up for themselves in this riot and free caches. Which I think the Equisapiens is another play, like, as wildly distracting as it is, is that there's half-horse people. Now that at the same note, like, it's at the end of the day, it's just another race, gender, ethnicity or something. And they now have to fight for their rights to show that they're more than just, you know, slaves. They are people of society because they are half human, which, you know, is really embodied by when Darius or, uh, yeah, I think his name is Darius, the Equisapian leader at the point says, yo, yo, bro, I'm from East Oakland, like just talk English to me. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that really makes points like paints a very great light. And, you know, they truly had an exact idea about what these Equisapiens were going to be when Steve said, you know, I want you to be their Martin Luther King and fight for their rights. Basically, he understood uh, like on paper that these are pretty much human beings or different species of human beings. But, you know, people aren't going to see them as such until they fight for their own rights. And so um, at this point in the film, you think that this is a very good resolution. You know, um, after doing those acts, Detroit and Cassius got back together and everything seems good. He kind of disowned or disavowed all of the materialistic things for the most part. Still back living in the garage of his uncle's place. And, you know, this is where the scene kind of drops off. He gives his car away, his Maserati. He goes back to his old beater and... Then it's him in Detroit, and they're closing the garage door to his old place. Yeah, and so you close the garage door, and there's like an oddly placed shelf on this garage door, like right in front of his face. So when he closes it, you initially think like he gets hit in the face by the shelf. Um, but realistically what happens is his face just starts hurting, turns around to look at Detroit, and he's you know metamorphosizing into an Equisapien at this point to confirm you know he had taken the activator and didn't have the antidote. And, you know, Cash at this point kind of comes full circle from early in the movie talking about he wants to be, you know, someone who creates a change, um, someone who wants to leave a lasting legacy for his generations to come. Um, you never really get to see what Detroit and them think of Cassius, but he's fully evolved into an Equisapien. And you see him, you know, lead this group of Equisapiens to Steve's house, you know, breaks in. Uh, final scene is he opens the door and puts out this really loud neigh yell roar type thing kind of similar to a lot of sci-fi horror movies and it just cuts black yeah and so julian uh we kind of talked about all of the ideas and the thoughts that we picked up on the movie what was your true you know i finishing idea totally of the movie what did you think about sorry to bother you i mean i thought it's a really abstract but to put something on the nose for you know everyone to understand like you can't 
you know, put this thing about capitalism and slave labor by just, you know, be like, oh, we made a guy with a third arm, right? Like, that's just going to be a little odd and normal. But when you put something very extreme as, you know, genetically inbreeding, you know, your power callers to become equisapiens to, you know, cut down on labor really kind of resonates once you pick up the full picture. If you don't pick up the full picture, then you're still kind of a little jarred, but you're still thinking about, you know, how capitalism is working. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, something so symbolically heavy, and that's just for regular movies. Now, granted, we just told you about a comedy, which is pretty insane, but it's extraordinarily um, odd. And I found it some sometimes and somewhat familiar being an African-American and working in the corporate like America, uh, some of the similarities. And obviously, they were hyperbolic and very stretched out from experiences that I've had, but at the same time, I can tell what type of tone it is. And I've like, you know, felt that tone before. And I found that this movie was something that was extraordinarily great and truly refreshing. I'm really glad that, you know, people are putting the connection between like this and get out. And the fact that, you know, you're, um, being introduced to a lot of cultural like topics that, you know, aren't usually talked about that now are brought to light in this artistic medium. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess today was a pretty long podcast for us. We hope you tuned in and listened to, you know, most of it and got something out. If you haven't seen Sorry to Bother You and you listen to this, well, you're going to have to see it to see the imagery anyways. Um, or if you did see it, let us know by sending us an email at the off the top podcast at gmail.com. Um, any last words? No, thanks guys. <laughs>